Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's show, we're bringing you our spring reading recommendations. We're talking all manner of bookish treats for your ears now, but soon for your eyes. From obsessions with K-pop bands to musical ruminations on borders and immigrants to an interrogation of how we should respond to the art of monstrous men. Here with their expert recommendations are two Monocle on Culture regulars, it's the Brains Trust, co-founder of Unbound and co-host of the Backlisted podcast, John Mitchinson, and the cultural and literary critic, Mia Leverton. Welcome both to the programme. Lovely so to have you here. Us. Good to be here. Also nice to make introductions on this programme. <laughs> Always, they met in Zoom. They met in lockdown on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So this is... IRL. <laughs> this is very much IRL. Mia, we're going to kick off with you. It's a brilliant title for a novel. Straight away, we're in a sex therapist's office or eavesdropping on one. This is brilliant territory to start with. This is Big Swiss by uh, Jen Began. So pleased to start with this because it is laugh out loud funny, and I think we could all use a good laugh. It is totally bonkers and outrageous. This is Jen Began's third novel. The first two, Pretend I'm Dead and Vacuum in the Dark, both had the same protagonist, a cleaner called Mona, loosely based on her own experiences cleaning houses. And Mona, you know, has exploits and has a kind of Sophie Cal-esque project photographing herself with the objects that she cleans. But I think really with this one, Began is just fully into her, her voice. It's set in Hudson, which is called the Brooklyn of the Hudson Valley, and that's where Began is based. It um, So this is sort of like exiled Manhattan and Brooklyn hipsters... Exactly. Who she Spinning sends, their beans on a therapist's couch. Who she sends Literally up. and metaphorically. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> she calls them better looking than average and dress. they dress like boutique farmers. <laughs> so this is set before the pandemic when there was a huge influx of people, um, mass exodus out of New York, but it was already going through a lot of gentrification. You know, she also calls it like a summer camp for adults and, you know, also sends up the kind of a whole wellness, language around wellness with, as you said, sex therapist called Ohm, of all things. <laughs> so our heroine's called Greta. She is 45 and she's a pharmacy tech until the pharmacy is held up uh, at gunpoint by a junkie looking for painkillers, you know, also kind of... Opioid exactly. style. Yep. At which point she takes this job transcribing sex therapist sessions, which given that the population of Hudson is 5,000, even though they're anonymized, the patients, you know, very quickly she recognizes voices and runs into and interacts with the patients. So, I mean, it is a brilliant premise. And it's such a good premise. She does such a great job with it. Is Hudson like the Buenos Aires? You know, there are more shrinks per head, literally, in Buenos Aires than any other city in the world. How is Hudson for people that require sex therapy? I think he's doing good business. He's doing big, okay, good yeah. to hear. Um, you know, so the Big Swiss is Greta's nickname for one of the clients, and she's married to a man with whom sex feels like, quote, walking the dog and drinking wheatgrass at the same time. Um, so I think Ohm's services are, are welcome in the, in the community. So is this, is this full of her and reimaginings of these sessions on the couch, as it were, or is this all about different type of sessions on the couch with Big Swiss? So she listens to the sessions on the couch and kind of quips that, you know, in her job, you have inevitably people, you know, masturbating at home all afternoon. But Big Swiss is like... Hashtag kind of... freelance. <laughs> 
<laughs> no <Sorry>. comment. <laughs> um, that's why we work in cafes. Um, but so she basically kind of is very taken with the story of Flavia, who's a 28-year-old inorgasmic gynecologist, which, you know, is also kind of interesting take. And she nicknames her Big Swiss because she's tall and from Switzerland. Um, and this character is going to be played by jo- Jodie Comer in the upcoming yeah. HBO adaptation, which I think is brilliant. I saw your notes and was like, this would make a... Oh, they are doing it's it. So yeah, great. Exactly. It's so great. And then, you know, Comer's just coming out of her um, award-winning performance of, um, of Prima Facie, which is on Broadway now, which is just, just such a brilliant uh, next step for her, I think. And just a final note on the style of Big Swiss by Jen Began. Um, where are we? Is this... Are we... Oh, do we feel like we're eavesdropping on all these conversations with the sex therapist? Oh, so Began is a master at dialogue. So mm-hmm. I think this is kind of her forte. Um, but basically what happens is, um, to fast forward, they so she is kind of taken with this character, and then they run into each other in the dog park, and they uh, commence this you know, passionate affair. Um, and it is loosely based on uh, the author's real-life experience of leaving her husband for women she met in the dog park. So, And I only mention that because the sex scenes are went, rendered in a kind of very exuberant and convincing manner, um, which kind of coming back to my recurrent theme of you know queer sex being the only sex that's being portrayed in any kind of yeah. joy on the page at the moment, given the trauma narrative. Um, so less wheatgrass, more wild oats. <laughs> basically. Um, <laughs> But um, she, so the other interesting thing that that Began does in the novel is that um, she's really sending up the trauma narrative because um, both women are, you know, have experienced trauma, so, and yet neither wants to identify with it. So that's really interesting. But then she's clever about it because, of course, they nonetheless have their trauma and have to deal with it and, and live their lives. And, you know, it ends inevitably as it must without any spoilers, but um, <laughs> with Greta on the couch uh, taking ketamine. So nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got. <laughs> great. It does sound great. We're gonna. That's that. We're gonna have to leave Big Swiss there by Jen Began. Thanks for leaving us on sort of tenterhooks. Yeah. <laughs> that is published by Faber, and that is out on the eighteenth of May. John, we're going in hard and fast with your first choice, which is Monsters: A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dedora. Clay Dedder is a wonderful American memoirist and critic, film critic. I guess this book is, uh, this is a conversation that every dinner party probably throughout time has had. What, what do we do about monstrous people who create great art? Mm. It starts with her reflecting on her love for Polanski's movies and somehow how she manages to maintain that love while knowing he was also convicted of anally raping a 13-year-old child let's be honest yeah and also in a way that was not you know not, not he's never gone big on remorse Polanski yeah. so big moral issue very very difficult to unpick but the book is in a way her unpicking of it she picks some of the most obvious and notable cases starting with Polanski goes on there's a there's a brilliant chapter on Woody Allen and I particularly love the way she she pulls in I mean all the way through Dedra is a She's a memoirist as well as a critic, so she's pulling in her own experience. And in, in fact, the book, in, in the, the culmination of the book at the end, where she deals with her um, her decision to give up drinking, kind of inspired by thinking about the life and career of, of uh, Raymond Carver, the great mm. American short story writer. But what you get en route is is just a series of really, I think, brilliantly posed dilemmas. 
how she kind of resolves the book, I think, is fascinating. And probably, I mean, you can't really give a spoiler for a non-fiction book, but <laughs> I think she does it beautifully at the end. So you go into the kind of the, the genius theory, you know, Picasso, uh, Hemingway. There's a, a lovely bit where she deals with Stephen Fry's attempt to deal with his love of Wagner by saying, if I just could write yeah. him a few letters as a rather yeah. pathetic Englishman and say, don't write this silly stuff about anti-Semitism. It's going to dog your, your reputation yeah, yeah. for the rest. But she's... And what I love about her writing is, I mean, she's got that kind of... She's got the breadth of, of reading of a, a sort of an Olivia Lang, but she's also incredibly honest and very funny. Um, uh, sort of Olivia Lang with, with, with jokes in a yeah. way. And but, does, she, does she... You say she sets up these dilemmas which, as you say, are the, are the, are the staple of many a conversation, many in a, a, a weekend newspaper editorial and all the rest of it. Does she come down on either side? Does she end up liking the art more than the monsters? Are they all men? They're not all men. There's, mm. a, there's a brilliant... There are two, two brilliant chapters on women. One, the first time, I think, that Valerie Solanas, who mm. the, 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 the feminist who shot Andy Warhol, and Sylvia Plath would be brought together in, in one chapter. When she says, what if Sylvia Plath had shot Ted Hughes instead of killing herself? Yeah. So there's a, she, she, again, she develops that theme, I think, really interestingly. And then there's a, you know, everybody's favourite uh, singer-songwriter, Joni Mitchell, the great feminist heroine, uh, Doris Lessing, are both examined from the point of view of having abandoned children and their relationship mm -hmm. with with children. So it's not, I mean, what she says is that her definition of a monster, and she uses the word with heavy kind of inverted commas because it's it, she likes it because it kind of it, it makes you think what is a monster it's sort of tabloidies yeah, as well, yeah, isn't she, it? she says it's basically someone whose behavior disrupts our ability to apprehend the work on its own terms yeah. and it's not i would say that she doesn't come down on a you know she doesn't come she doesn't let herself off the hook and just say well we we have to divide the artist from the work you can't do that is what she says that's what 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 it's really about is is in the end that your response is your response. And I think I can go this far as to say that she comes to the point where it's, what do we do about people that we love and go on loving who do terrible mm. things? So she kind of brings it down to a very, on a, onto a very personal level. I mean, the one, there's one line in here which is one of the best things I've, I've read. The way you consume art doesn't make you a bad person or a good one. You'll have to find some other way to accomplish that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It sounds, it sounds like this is timely and the kind of thing that will be on so many summer reading lists and be endlessly editorialised, I suppose, and written about. She, I mean, I'm not saying she solves the problem, but she does, she does a brilliant job of making you, making you think differently about it. Mm. She changes the, term of, to the terms in which you, can, you approach it. What was interesting for me reading it, exactly that in terms of her not... You know, you, you hope a book like this will come up with a code, like an answer that you can take forward with your own, you know, reckoning with these things. But um, actually her own grappling with it, what I realized as she went through her positions was that mine, even though kind of on paper I should have similar sensibilities, I, I didn't. And actually what I came, the conclusion that that gave me was that um, very helpfully, we, we like what we like at the terrible risk of uh, quoting Woody Allen or Dickinson via Woody Allen. You know, the heart wants what the heart what the heart wants, and then we kind of justify those those things, including in the art that we like, right? So for me, where I draw the line, I can take or leave Woody Allen, um, but you know, do not take my Updike away from me. So, you know, it's very easy for me to say, well, you know, Updike's not getting royalties, or you know, Roald Dahl, even better example. 
But that's a convenient line that I put in myself because it works with my examples. And I would have a much harder time if... Yeah, I mean, we will revert. We can all reverse engineer our <laughs> kind of lines as well, can't we? Our, our we, take on this. And I think she does also come up. I mean, we are all monstrous to some degree or other. I mean, I would say that there are definite degrees of monstrousness, and some of the people she writes about in this book are, are definitely more monstrous than others. But yeah, embracing or understanding your own monstrousness is one of the things she tries to do in the book. Well, this is to be <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> uh, it's Monsters, a Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dederer, and that is out on the 25th of May, published by Scepter. Mia, we're going to Kairos. Um, Jenny Erpenbeck is your next choice. Yes. So Jenny Erpenbeck is a very interesting case because she is one of the most lauded German authors, you know, so much so that she's almost flippant about prizes and, you know, kind of tossed around as a name for the Nobel and yet was virtually unknown in the U.S. Uh, up until recently. You know, it was better covered in the, in the U.K., but in the U.S., outside of the literati, was virtually unknown. And I think it's interesting in the context of other books we're seeing coming out about the East German experience during reunification, you know, to be paired with Katja Hoyer's Beyond the Wall or Philip Alterman's The Stasi Poetry Circle, which kind of take... The, the narrative has been a very Western one of like, you know, here we are offering freedom and shiny wrapping paper and consumerism um, and liberating these Germans, so to speak. And I think these are very useful counterpoints of like, yes, uh, communism was bad, but, you know, what about all the people? What did it feel like to to live on the other side in a more nuanced way? And it wasn't all great because, yes, you know, you offer the chance to travel, but if you've lost your job and your rent has gone up tenfold, can you afford to? Yeah. Right. And this love story then takes, this is a love story, and it takes place, it takes place here in Berlin in 1986. Is the, is the background in terms of the politics and the fall of communism or the decaying of it taking kind of front of centre, or is the, is the love story doing that, Mia? Well, she does both beautifully. Yeah. So it is a love story, and it's almost Psalter-esque um, in that way because it's, she uses, or the, her translator, uh, Michael Hoffman, uses present tense, which is unusual in literary fiction, but it really conveys the immediacy of, of their love story, which turns very sour when he discovers she's having a quote-unquote affair because, you know, he's married, but she somehow has to be <laughs> de- dedicated to him. She's, by the way, 19, and he's in his mid-50s. Re-monsters. Yes. You know, he turns on her and gets very sadistic, and it makes for extremely uncomfortable reading. There's nothing titillating about this, you know. So it is um, definitely a metaphor for, you know, socialism in terms of he seduces her with his kind of intelligentsia, um, you know, with the music and the literature. And then as soon as he turns, it gets very violent, which is um, a theme that Urban Beck has dealt with before. So the book is framed with Katerina in the present day receiving boxes of their old letters and cassette tapes. And she kind of digs out her own box of her memories about it. And so this is, this is what she has to say. A long time ago, the papers in his boxes and those in her suitcase were speaking to each other. Now they're both speaking to time. A suitcase like that, cardboard boxes like that, full of middles and endings and beginnings, buried under decades' worth of dust, pages that were written to deceive alongside other pages that were striving for truth, things itemized, other things passed over, all lying together, higgledy-piggledy, the contradictions and the denials, silent fury and mute adoration together in one envelope, in one folder. What is forgotten just as creased and yellowed as what dimly or distinctly one still remembers. 
It's beautiful stuff. It's Jenny Erpenbeck's Kairos. It's published by Granta, and that's out on the 1st of June. Thank you, Mia. John, we're changing the tempo, literally. We are. Whites can dance too, apparently. This is by Kalaf Epalanga. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't seen John and I. Uh, (laughs) Tell us about this one. This is a first novel by Kalaf Epalanga, who is best known as um, a musician. Um, He was a performer in the amazing Angolan kind of electro-fusion band, famous for... uh, Famous for introducing a, a kind of a beat and a style into uh, into ele- electronic music in the 2000s. The band was called Baraka Son Sistema. Yeah. And the the form of music is called Kuduro, which I think means hard ass, uh, literally. <laughs> and, um, and it was it's a kind of, it's a protest music. You can go and look at the, the videos of, of um, Baraka Son Sistema. And the, the, the dancing, particularly in the young kids dancing, is incredible. Yeah, it's kind amazing. Of jerky, kind of strange. Completely original, completely fresh. And that's kind of why I fell in love with this book. It's a first novel. There are three voices in it. One is Kalafa Epelanga himself talking about him being uh, arrested uh, as an illegal immigrant and imprisoned briefly in Norway. The middle section is by... uh, his kind of his the, the woman who marries him to help sort out his his constant visa problems. They're always they're traveling, and the, his passport runs out. And so he marries a woman called Sophia, who's a dance teacher. So it's her story, set in Lisbon, based around a meal and her kind of romance with a with a Brazilian who's come and is fascinated, wants to make a film about the Kadura scene. And then the final section is Avind, who is the, who's known in the first section as the Viking. He's this Norwegian cop that arrests Kalaf. And it turns out that he's a massive music fan. And without giving it all away, his love of music substantially mitigates his kind of resistance to the idea that this is an illegal immigrant. It, yeah. it, kind, of, it kind of works out. I don't think it's entirely successful in a way as a, as a novel. But what it is is immensely fresh and different I particularly the middle section, Sophia, when they, when you're talking about the incredible cultural exchange of music from Africa, the Fado of Lisbon, with the uh, you know the great music from Cape Verde, the Cape Verde Islands between there, and then Brazilian music as well, merengue and, and soca, and uh, zouk, which is an, an, another. I mean, it's it's a, as much as anything else. This book is an incredible education. In, yeah, this is, in, and in, listeners in, will be on YouTube within seconds. It, in in musical styles, out. and I think the first stuff is it feels like more like memoir. It's almost like I don't know whether Caliph has it what was ever in fact, but it is a book about borders and boundaries, and you know, without overplaying the kind of music does not recognise boundaries. It's continually remaking itself and rejuvenating itself. It's really enjoyable. I hope he goes on to write. He's a really extraordinary. It's a, yeah. It's also brilliantly translated by Is one of the great sort of Daniel Hahn, one to, of the great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you that, get that, this sort of you, you on the matter pair of drum beats and that that and crazy think, vibey music. And I think if, if you're if you're feeling kind of depressed as we all are by the, the, again and talking about intractable problems, you know, how do we deal with a globalized world where continually barriers are being put in the way of people, move, you know, moving from from one place to another? then there is a kind of particular, as I say, in the middle section where you get that sense of all of this music starts with people sitting in, particularly in yards. You know, it's like in Congo Square in New Orleans where where jazz started. People sit in yards, they play songs, they fall in love, they eat food. This is what it means to be human 
we can still do this. It's a good sentiment, I think. Whites Can Dance 2 is by Kalaf Epalanga. That's translated by Daniel Hahn. Faber publishing that on the 15th of June. Thank you very much, John. And we'll come to your final choice, uh, Mia, and that is YN by Esther Yee. This sounds great. Yeah, it's really quirky and really wonderful. So Esther Yee is really challenging that notion that we can still sit and eat together and fall in love. Um, It's a book about um, kind of parasocial relationships and fandom, although she didn't set out to write about that. Um, She says she meant to just write about a woman who falls desperately in love with a man, realizing that that is, of course, you know, completely passé. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so she, she read the backs of any other books, let alone right. any other actual books, um, um, but not just any man. No, exactly. So it's um, he's the youngest member of a K-pop band. He's called Moon, and of course his bandmates are called you know Sun, Jupiter, Mercury, and Venus. And it's a quest narrative. It's kind of you know whether or not you're quest is you know whether it's a Jane Austen novel or Moby Dick it's mm-hmm. something that that longing and mm-hmm. she really conveys that that longing and the that desire to feel the longing without it being resolved which is sort of what the fan relationship holds uh, but she does it in a really interesting way so while Esther Yee isn't judgmental about celebrity culture she does agree that it speaks to quote some kind of absence within our current landscape so as we're talking, you know, about this frustration of, of finding love, it's particularly interesting, I think, in the context of what that's going to look like in the face of AI when people are starting to have relationships with uh, ChatGPT and is the subject of my book, The Future of Seduction, published by John yes. here, as it happens. As it happens. Does our protagonist, does she meet Moon? Is this an entirely unrequited, long-distance, typical fan and pop star well, it thing. would be a spoiler to tell you, Rob, if she meets the. <laughs> okay, because you're keeping that. You're keeping your. You're keeping your. <laughs> she, she goes your light to, under a bushel there. She goes here. to Seoul. You know, she so she starts in Berlin. She's a Korean American copywriter for a company that sells canned artichokes. So it does have this little satirical element. It's not quite as outrageous as Jen Began, but he yeah. does have this sort of satire, particularly of consumer culture, and you know becomes infatuated with, with Moon, and then decides to sort of drop her boyfriend and her job and go pursue him. And, you know, whether or not they meet, I will leave it to you to discover. Leave it to um, the readers, customers yes. in, in bookshops across our summer period. That is SDE's YN. Yes. Which stands for? So YN is not yes, no, as you might think. Yeah. It's actually your name. Yeah, it's a is, fan fiction thing. Exactly. It yeah. is a fan fiction convention that allows you to insert your name into a piece of fan fiction, usually romantic, and... Yi's also very interesting about this sort of erasure of identity. So, you know, the quest for transcendence or to be subsumed in something greater, which, you know, she has said is the goal of all art, actually, not only, you know, love, but art, devotion. So the the narrator rem- remains unnamed and writes fan fiction in addition to wanting to be part of Moon's life. And there is a sort of interesting interplay of kind of erasing yourself right in order to be part of this bigger you know whatever it is that you're you're yeah. after subsuming it into yourself into the ether mm-hmm. that is SCE's YN uh, that's published on the 8th of June thank you Mia and we're going finally back to John for a big boy is he a monster though <laughs> Richard Ford's Be Mine um, yeah well this is um, this is the fifth outing there are three previous novels mm. and a short book let me be frank with you, which features 
Ford's central character, his central voice, I think, which is the voice of Frank Baskin, a sports writer who loses a, loses a son at the age of nine. Uh, the son is age nine, who becomes a realtor. And this, this is now Frank. We're now confidently told this is the last instalment in Frank's story. Frank Baskin is now 74. In the great novel, Independence Day, which won both the Penn Faulkner and the Pulitzer, uh, what happens is Frank Baskin, estranged from his wife, drives his son Paul to a... It's Independence Day weekend, drives him across America to go to a baseball hall of fame. Paul gets injured, gets hit by a baseball. Much insight into father-son relationships and responsibility ensues. That was a very summary novel set when he's a, in, his, in his full kind of glory as a realtor in New York. This book, Be Mine, is set on Valentine's Day. It's, as we discovered, just before the pandemic, and it is another trip. He's taking Paul, who is now dying of a fast-onset ALS, which is a kind of a neurological sort of motor neuron condition, and he is taking him to go and visit Mount Rushmore. It's almost to it's, look America it's, in the it's, face. It's kind of, it's, yeah. kind, it's kind of, it could be corny, but the thing with Richard Ford, he's incapable of writing, you know, a dull sentence. Mm. I mean, he, he, the, the story is the movement of Frank's mind, the voice inside Frank's head. Frank, Frank continually reappraising, appraising. It, 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 as much as anything, I think Ford's work is. Anybody wants to understand what the, the kind of beat of consciousness of a particular kind of, you know, m middle American male, then, you know, th these are extraordinary documents. Yeah. And it's, it's, it could be bleak. I mean, it's, you know, the well, son's the dying. the son's sickening Frank, before the dad. Uh, yeah. For some reason, bafflingly to me, he's reading what he calls the old Nazi Heidegger, which is not really helping. <laughs> so <laughs> you have the father trying to build a relationship with the, the, the son who's trying to cheer himself up about the, his impending death. There's an amazing scene where they visit a real place in Mitchell, um, South Dakota, the Corncob Palace. He's trying to find things for his son, to, to distract his son or to find a way that they can talk openly about what's happening. It's saved from bleakness, I guess, in the end by the, just the fact that, that Bascom is, never lets himself off the hook. He's a fully realised character. Now, that character may have limitations. It may not be a character that I would imagine people under the age of 40 would want to spend much time <laughs> in the company of because he is much possessed with death and meaning and looking back on his life. The kind of the, the wonderful summary kind of energy of Independence Day. And Be Mine, obviously, it's, it's, it's strange. It's, it's a book in the end about, about happiness and love and the difficulty that we all have in finding both of those things in our lives. Beautiful, John. Thank you. Richard Ford's Be Mine. We mentioned, didn't we, we're going to have to do this exceptionally quickly before we switched on the microphones in the green room. There was something you, you, we wanted to talk about with Richard Ford regarding an earlier title. Yes, I was just curious, John, as a publisher, how you perceived, so for anybody who's not aware, Richard Ford um, had some kind of monstrous um, interactions with critics in the past. Yeah, I mean, he famously shot, I think, uh, a novel by a, a, a writer he didn't like, took it out in the garden. Yeah. And he, he had there was some, there was some very bad blood between We've him all and been there. Colson, Colson White. <laughs> well, uh, bad blood. I mean, he spat at him. He, he spat at him um, um, for a bad review. Which, um, as a critic, yeah. I mean, that is really despicable behaviour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would I say about Richard is that if he's 
a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite that puts his hand up and says, I'm a hypocrite. I mean, I, you know, he's going to be one of these writers who says, everything you want to know is there in the books. I mean, I think it is a challenge. I mean, it's, that, 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 particularly that, that, that the Colson Whitehead story is, is, a, is a shocking one. I mean, having published him and knowing him, he's entirely capable of doing that. And in a way, you're back to, you're actually back to Claire Diderot's book, which is, what do you do with people you like who behave in, ter in a terrible way? Do you not read their work? It's tricky. I mean, I, it's, I think in the end, we, we can only each answer that question yeah. honestly ourselves. I have to say, as a kind of final book, um, I, found this, I found this incredibly moving. It's the end to a fairly big bit of American literature. But yeah. there are going to be a lot of people who say, why should we care? You know, I don't like the way this guy lives. I don't like the way he behaves. I don't, I don't need to read his books, which is perfectly fair. Well, I think the answer to that might be in at least two of the books uh, in today's choices. <laughs> thanks, John. Thanks, Mia. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Mia Levitin and John Mitchinson and special thanks to Helmi Pillai and Mariella Bevan for their help with this episode. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu and Steph also edits the show. We will be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Pound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.